So as you know, Hal, last spring, Shale and I held a fantasy draft to see who would win the best technology team for decarbonization. We gave you the list. Who do you think won? Well, Stephen, I hate to say it, but Shale knocked it out of the park. Everyone thought that. I mean, it's, that's because it's true. Maybe there's a lesson buried in there, Stephen. <laughs> What's the lesson? <laughs> You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, coming up, if Shale and I are the globetrotters of decarbonization, we bring in the coaching staff for the Golden State Warriors. First, though, this podcast is brought to you by Wonder Capital. Having already financed more than 100 megawatts of small commercial solar projects, Wonder Capital was recently named the leading commercial solar financier by GTM and Wood Mackenzie Power and Renewables. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next community solar or commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com slash GTM. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with GTM. Welcome. I'm joined by Shale Khan. He's my co-host. He's the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Good morning, Shale. How are you? Morning, Stephen. Doing great. That was so nice, but you didn't even really have to say much. I could hear the smugness in your voice <laughs> over your fantasy team because Hal picked you. I mean, I've had a great year since we since we had that draft. I've just been riding that high pretty much the whole time. Though I don't know if I like or don't like that you called us the Harlem Globetrotters of decarbonization. I do Why? like the They're awesome. Yeah, but like the game is rigged. This was a fair and square duel that I won. Yeah, but it's all about the tricks that they can do. It's more about the spectacle, and that's what we do here. You know, we explore issues with spectacle. The spectacle is why you picked, like, plasma waste recycling or whatever it was. <laughs> yep. Well, this week, beyond feel-good political sloganeering and tricks and into the complicated reality of decarbonization, our guest has spent a good portion of his career mapping the best pathways to slash emissions. That guest is Hal Harvey, the CEO of Energy Innovation, an analysis firm that helps decision makers make better decisions about energy and environmental policy. Hal has served on energy advisory panels for Presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, and he's out with a new book that he co-wrote called Designing Climate Solutions. It's a guide to decarbonization policies based on years of modeling and implementing those policies. Hal joins us from San Francisco. Welcome, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well this morning, and I'm delighted to be with you today. Well, we're, we're happy to have you on. Uh, so we're at this inflection point in politics when people are so angry that we haven't done enough. And we're now sort of guided by these tempestuous arguments over renewables-only policies, carbon pricing-only policies, the Green New Deal, etc. And in you step with a book that takes a counter-approach. It's a careful guide to thinking through different policy choices. What are you trying to do with this book? You know, the threats of climate change are so severe, and the mathematics of carbon accumulation are so daunting it requires society to make the right choices and make them promptly. We just cannot afford to spend a lot of time or a lot of political capital or a lot of cash on strategies that won't make a huge return against uh, carbon limitations. So what we've tried to do in the book uh, and in our modeling is isolate which policies make the biggest contribution to carbon reduction to understand with some depth what is required for each of them, for example, uh, do they require a lot of capital? Do they return capital? Do they help human health along the way? And so forth. 
and then especially to focus on how to design each policy because having the right intent and the right title of a policy uh, doesn't matter much if the innards are not properly laid out. So it sounds like you've got a, a secret sauce of policies swirling around there. Uh, is there some kind of magic formula you've, you've come upon? Well, our goal would be to make it not secret, not at all, but to make it ubiquitous. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but there are, there are some elements to this. I'll give you one example. Uh, continuous improvement. I'm going to give you a, a, an example of where it worked brilliantly and where we failed to use it. What I mean by continuous improvement is that technology uh, improves almost every day, certainly every year. And yet policy stagnates sometimes for decades. So the great example is when Jerry Brown was the youngest governor in California's history, he adopted a, a very strong building code so that all new buildings had to be quite energy efficient. But he put in a clause that says every three years that code gets even tighter, depending of course on the availability of cost-effective energy efficiency technology. And the consequence of that is through Republican and Democratic administrations ever since, right up through Jerry Brown's two terms as the oldest governor in California's history, the building code has gotten tighter and tighter and tighter. And it, it did two things. It didn't require political bandwidth. Nobody had to go back to the legislature and say, let's take care of this. There were no fights. The other thing it did is it gave manufacturers of efficient technologies a long-term goal. They wanted their stuff to be cost effective. They wanted to roll into the next code. So it was a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom. Uh, that's, that's a really powerful policy idea. So now let me give you an example of where we failed with that powerful policy idea. So when Gerald Ford was president, he signed into law the fuel efficiency standards for automobiles, the so-called CAFE standards, to double fuel efficiency of new cars from 13 miles per gallon to 26. After that doubling occurred between 1975 and 1985, fuel efficiency in cars stagnated for about 25 years. Engineering and technology motored right along, but we applied all of that improvement to power and to weight rather than to fuel efficiency. So what if Gerald Ford, instead of saying 26 miles per gallon is the goal, said 4% improvement per year is the law? We would have sent a lot less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and we would have saved over a trillion dollars that we sent to countries that are not friendly with the United States. So that simple idea, don't set a standard that's a fixed number, but set a rate of change is as close to magic as you can get in this business. The version of that that I think of when I read about continuous improvement, I wonder whether you, one, think this fits the bill, and two, agree with this characterization is in the sort of first big wave of solar growth, there was the, you know, Germany was responsible for the, the biggest chunk of it. And they were doing it with feed-in tariffs that were fixed price. And then they would sometimes reset the feed-in tariff annually, but they had an issue all the time. And this happened not just in Germany, but like Spain, Czech Republic and other places too, where they would set the feed-in tariff at a fixed price. And then the costs would fall faster than they expected. So there'd be a boom in deployment and then they'd have to cut way back. And in the most extreme cases, like in Spain, they would do retroactive cuts that have really terrible effects on the market over the long term. And, you know, when I started looking at solar, which was like 2007, 2008, Germans were 
uh, generally very proud of that policy. But meanwhile, California had set the California Solar Initiative, which was a program with incentives that automatically stepped down over time when certain capacities were hit. So once you hit whatever it was, 100 megawatts, the next block would automatically step down. So it wasn't continuous improvement in a percentage sense, but it was an incentive that was designed to decline over time forcing installers to figure out how to drive down costs in order to eventually become competitive to the point where the program would expire, which it did. So, you know, in that light, it seems like California set it right with a some somewhat continuous improvement type policy and European markets that set feed-in tariffs didn't. Do you agree or disagree with that? I would say what you're describing is incredibly important, but it's not really continuous improvement so much as price finding. Uh, I guess from an economist's perspective, it is continuous improvement. I was thinking more in terms of continuous improvement in carbon abatement. But price finding is itself a second principle, an absolutely crucial one in smart energy policy. One way to pay the minimum price for new technology, which is important because we have limited money and need maximum deployment, is to run what we call a reverse auction, which is basically you're auctioning off the subsidy and whoever bids the lowest for any tranche of clean energy technology wins. And price finding is far more effective in most cases than price setting. Whenever you set a price, it's wrong. It's a little too high or a lot too high or a little too low. You don't know, but if you let the market find a price, efficiency ensues. But you're both describing something that's so important because you need that price discovery and those volumetric reductions and subsidies while also uh, having consistency in improvements in performance standards, for example. So those those things need to be working in tandem. And uh, the worst policies are ones that don't follow either or both of those guidelines. And that's really the secret sauce, actually. It's not a specific policy that's going to somehow magically give us the decarbonization we need. It's designing that policy properly because you can have the, the best policy intentions in the world. And if you don't do one or both of those things, then you could really screw up. Well, and both of these hook together in an important way, which uh, economists call the learning curve, which has to do with the, how fast prices of technology drops as volume increases. And solar, wind, LED lights, lithium-ion batteries have been on these amazing learning curves with drops of 50, 70, 95%, depending on the technology. So if you have standards that are steadily increasing and a price-finding way of purchasing these technologies, you can really accelerate them down the learning curve. And that is what creates options for society. Though now you've given me my soapbox to stand on with my frustration with how we talk about learning curves, particularly for solar. This is true for actually lithium-ion batteries too, which is that we've all seen these charts that show the the rate of um, cost decline as a function of the increased deployment of these things, sometimes called Swanson's Law, which is a mistaken title in the solar context. The problem is that those are looking at the cost of one component, right? It's the solar panel or it's the lithium-ion battery. Sometimes even looks at the cell. And and the reality is that we have not seen the same kind of learning curve when you take the holistic cost of a system into account. This is especially true with solar. Solar panel prices kept declining much, much faster than systems did. And in addition to that, you know, the, the differential 
in system costs is not from different locations, right? So you, you still have much, much higher cost to install residential solar in the United States than you do in Germany or Australia or most of the developing world, um, despite the fact that that module prices, panel prices are pretty close. So to me, the, though it is true that there's clearly a, a learning curve um, when you're looking at a specific component, I worry that we spend too much time thinking about that and not enough time thinking about all the other little specific costs that you have to wring out of the system that you're not going to get just purely as a function of more deployment. I couldn't agree more. I think you're exactly right, Shale. Uh, it, it costs half as much to put a solar panel on a roof in Germany as it does in the United States. And Germany is not a low regulation or low wage country. It's because they've thought through, really thought through what it takes, the permitting, the siting, the wiring, the installation standards. They've developed one-stop shopping for installations. We haven't done that in the U.S. So we're wasting money. We're going the wrong way on a learning curve, or we flattened out the installation learning curve. We have to pay attention to that, too. I, that's sort of a good segue into something I was curious to ask you about. In the book, you basically develop your own version of the sort of famous McKinsey cost curve that, that came out. And I think the original one was maybe 2007, which is looking at basically the cost effectiveness of various um, decarbonization policies. Do they return money or do they cost money? against how much carbon reduction you can get. And some of the results in your curve were sort of non-intuitive to me. The first one being by far the most cost-effective policy that you guys found was urban mobility policy, followed immediately by vehicle electrification. So like mobility is the place where you can do the most cost-effective policymaking. I'm curious what you think is behind that and what that tells you about where we should be focusing our attention on decarbonization policy. Sure. So l let me start with just a quick description of what these curves are. What McKinsey did is analyze a lot of different technologies, wind, nuclear, lighting, building efficiency. For every one of those technologies, they figured out how much carbon it could abate and what the cost would be. And their costs were both negative and positive. So if you saved money with super efficient light bulbs, they would give you a negative cost, which is another way of saying a profit, I suppose. We use the same layout, but instead of modeling technology, we modeled policy. So what does a renewable portfolio standard deliver in terms of carbon abatement and in terms of costs? When you do that and you look at all costs, so we included health, for example, it turns out that there are a number of strategies that have enormous co-benefits. So if you change urban mobility, you, you reduce childhood asthma and you reduce premature death pretty dramatically. So by changing urban mobility, by offering more options, by moving to electrification, you reduce health costs so much that it's kind of a lunch you're paid to eat. And then on the other side of it, the two policies that showed up as the most expensive, in other words, they, they, the net cost is positive, were first a distributed solar mandate. So interested to get your take on whether we should be mandating or subsidizing distributed solar given that cost. And then second, it, it, the worst one is gas to electricity, industrial fuel switching. So um, electrifying industry, basically, if they're currently using gas, which is actually a place that I've been thinking we should place more attention. But now I'm wondering whether I should be rethinking that. So curious what you think to, we should make of both distributed solar and, and gas to electricity, industrial fuel switching showing up at the other end of that spectrum. Well, first I have to say I have solar panels on my house and I put in my first distributed solar 
system on a house I built 30 years ago. And by the way, solar panels were a lot more expensive back in those days. So I'm sympathetic to and in favor of distributed solar. But we need to recognize with distributed solar, and Stephen, this is one of the reasons why I didn't vote for your team, is that it costs a whole lot more per kilowatt hour than centralized solar. The reason it's cost effective is because you essentially get paid at a retail rate, whereas centralized solar sells at a wholesale rate. But if you look at the total cost to society or the total benefits of society, it's clearly better to put solar where it's cheapest to put it, which is in very large scale concentrations out in the desert. But 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 then and that, that's that's true from a pure pricing standpoint. But there are all these other ancillary benefits that people factor into policy. I think this is what the folks developing the Green New Deal are trying to do. They are focusing on some of the more expensive solutions. It's probably not the most economically efficient policy, but. They want to provide more job opportunities, uh, educational opportunities. By localizing deployment, you start to get all these other benefits that you may not get from centralized development. So those are also considerations to take in mind when crafting policy as well. I agree. I agree completely. And I, and I would say bravo to anyone who can put solar on their house. They should. It's, it's cost effective for many homeowners and many utility jurisdictions. It certainly was was for me. I would not, if I had to choose between centralized solar and rooftop solar, it would be an easy choice. I'd go for centralized, but there's no reason we have to make that choice. Right. There's no, you're not making an argument here against distributed solar. You're just, you're just making an argument that a distributed solar mandate as a policy is a far more expensive policy than say a renewable portfolio standard that, um, that incentivizes centralized solar. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about one more on that curve, uh, and then we can move on. But the, the other one that I thought was really interesting is a revenue neutral carbon price, which uh, by definition, you'd think given that it's revenue neutral, it should cost zero. In fact, it's very close to zero in your calculations, but there's a slight positive cost to that. So I'm wondering what the cost is. Maybe it's just administrative. Um, but second, it also delivers by far the largest emissions abatement. So setting aside the cost, it's revenue neutral, but delivers just a ton of pure reduction of tons of CO2. In your mind, does that make it one of the policies that we should be promoting the most, or should we start with those that are most cost-effective? It turns out that a carbon price um, helps in every sector, but in some it does a lot, and in some it does very little, and this is important to understand as well. And, And I'll give an example. Fuel taxes in Europe are very high right now. It costs about six bucks to put a gallon of gas in your car in Europe, or seven or eight bucks. They have a tax of about $4 a gallon. They don't call it a carbon tax, but let's rename it. Let's call it a carbon tax. That would be equivalent to $400 a ton, which is 10 times higher than the highest proposals in Congress right now. And they nonetheless need a fuel efficiency standard for cars. And the reason is, is that transportation is fairly impervious to a carbon tax, unless you have a very high number. So the trick is to adopt great sector-specific policies. A building code is another one. Carbon tax has nothing to do with building energy efficiency because the people who design and build buildings never pay the utility bills. So they just don't care that much. But a good building code will cause them to create a good building. What happens if you have the good sector-specific policies is that the carbon tax mops up all the carbon that doesn't easily land in one of those sectors. 
And the most important realm for this, of course, is industry because industry is heterogeneous and price sensitive and highly sophisticated about deployment of, of capital. So I'm completely in favor of a carbon cap or a carbon tax. They're roughly equivalent, uh, but I wouldn't swap them for performance standards. Can we shift back to Shale's question about the cost effectiveness of something like urban mobility versus industrial electrification or industrial efficiency? You know, we seem to have a bit of a problem here in that there's an inverse relationship in the importance of those policies versus their cost competitiveness. So I'm looking at a chart here, uh, a, a, a block chart with a bunch of policies stacked together to show what you'd need to put in place simultaneously to create a 50% chance of hitting the two degree C target globally. And there's this little box on the side that's urban mobility. It's, it makes up 2.1% of the portfolio. And then there are these two big boxes all the way to the left, industrial energy efficiency standards and industrial process emissions policies. I presume kind of the electrification and the power to gas stuff is industrial process emissions policies. But I'll let you describe that. But, it, you know, policies addressing those sectors can be the, the most costly, but they're also the most important. So it feels to me like we've got a bit of a problem there. Well, we do have a problem with industrial energy use. It's important to segregate it into stuff that you should do right away that's extremely cost effective and realms where you need to spend money and spend time driving new technology down the learning curve. So the very first thing that I would do on the industrial side, and we show this as cost effective and has a big impact, is to stop methane leaks. Methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas, uh, and stopping leaks is, is a plumbing problem. It's not hard to do at all. It's much easier to do plumbing than to do thermodynamics. So that is both cost effective and has a large and immediate impact. I should also note that industry is typically the biggest user of electricity in most economies. And so when you clean up the grid, you automatically clean up industry. So there are a number of opportunities that are immediate, uh, fast, cheap, and deliver big results. There are others, like a number of industrial processes, where we do need to push more technologies down the learning curve. I think electrification of industrial process is a great idea, but it is expensive right now. Natural gas is incredibly cheap, convenient heat source, and electricity costs a lot more per delivered unit of heat today. And that's going to continue to be the case until we have a combination of policy and technology that no longer makes it the case. So the heuristic that I know a lot of people use, um, and certainly that I've been using for thinking about at the highest level, how do we decarbonize the economy is basically uh, electrify everything you can, decarbonize the electricity sector, and then kind of figure out how to mop up the pieces around the edges. Does that feel right to you at the highest level? Or given all your modeling, does that actually seem not like the best move? No, I think that's an excellent way to approach it. There you go, folks. That's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I can Problem elaborate solved. if you like. Yeah. Please. Yeah. So it's far faster and easier to decarbonize the grid than most people realize. And balancing out renewables is much easier than most people realize. Once you have low or zero carbon electricity, then you have a low or zero carbon car, presuming it's an electric plug-in car. Uh, that's what I've got 
in my house right now. I've got solar panels on the roof and an electric car. So I have the zero carbon house and zero carbon transportation and it all pays for itself. I'm lucky I have a house site that's suitable for solar, but it's really not a complicated choice. A lot of industry is electrified already. 45% of all electricity goes into motors globally. Uh, so bingo, you get into the industrial sector pretty quickly. There are technologies that are old but are getting much, much better, like heat pumps that allow you to heat a house with electricity far more economically than you could do even 10 years ago. All that said, there are some tough, tough sectors. For example, the last gallon of fuel that we burn in the world will be in a jet plane. It's really, really hard to go a long distance without the energy density of liquid hydrocarbons. Uh, although liquid carbohydrates like ethanol obviously could make a big contribution. So the stuff around the margins is probably, you know, a third of the total. But then you unpack that, there are all kinds of opportunities there as well. Now, let me challenge an assumption that you made there at the beginning of the answer, which was it's relatively easy to decarbonize the electricity sector. But experience tells us thus far that even a, a, an extremely high amount of renewables development doesn't decarbonize the electricity sector fast enough. And in fact, here in the U.S., most of the decarbonization has come from natural gas, not renewables. So how do you square those two things? Well, first, most of the decarbonization has come from energy efficiency, not natural gas and not renewables. Uh, but natural gas and renewables have played a big role. The natural gas figure worries me a great deal because of methane leaks, which if they're only three or four percent make gas as bad as coal. And I believe they're at least that high. So I actually don't think natural gas has done much good for us. And I worry about gas lock in. But the past does not necessarily prologue for the future. And so those jurisdictions that have made aggressive decarbonization strategies for their grid have hit those numbers before target and cheaper than target, ranging from Texas to California to many other countries. There are problems, for example, in Germany and in much of the U.S. having to do with coal, but that's about protecting incumbency. It's a political choice. It's not an economic or technical choice. What about the very high penetrations of renewables world? Um, how do you decarbonize the electricity sector when you are at you know, 70, 80, 90% wind and solar? That's a great question right now. If you think of the polar vortex and you want to have a house that's powered by wind and sunshine and you don't have natural gas as a backup, you might get a little nervous, right? Well, we have to take those questions very seriously. The first instinct that most people have when they think about handling the variability of solar and wind is to have batteries. And that is a understandable instinct, but it turns out the batteries are probably the sixth most expensive option. And we have several other options that we can and should use. So let me offer a couple just to illustrate. San Diego and Seattle never have the same peak energy load or same peak supply because they have different climates. They are connected by transmission lines, but they're disconnected through essentially the legal status of each. We don't trade energy across the country using existing wires the way we should. If you hook up different geographies, then renewable energy supply smooths itself dramatically. And the huge dams of the Bonneville Power Administration become the world's cheapest battery. It's already there. You just have to use it as a battery. Use it for 
ramping power instead of for bulk power. So step one is simply change the legal construct of the way we balance our power systems so that we can be more efficient about spreading electricity across the land on existing transmission lines. The next incredible option is demand response. I studied power systems engineering when I was in college, and we always took demand as a given. And whatever demand is, you turn on generators until you meet that with supply. It turns out there's a huge number of demands you can adjust as easily as you adjust supply. So for example, if you know it's gonna be a very hot day in Texas and a windless day in Texas, and by the way, those are things you know 24 hours in advance, then you pre-cool all the skyscrapers by a couple degrees. Not so much that people notice, but enough so that in the mid-afternoon when it's really hot, you don't have to cycle your air conditioners nearly as often. There are, it turns out to be thousands of demand response opportunities, and all they require is a switch and a radio and a little bit of software. They're essentially free, much cheaper, for example, than building a battery. So that's number two out of about half a dozen options. What about the longer term need that you get at high penetrations of renewables? Demand response is awesome and it's got a huge role to play. It, it solves your diurnal flexibility requirement pretty well um, in conjunction with other things, but it definitely does not solve your seasonal issue wherein you've got you know three times the solar generation in the summer that you have in the winter in California or six times in Germany. Do you think that connecting up markets is, is sufficient to solve that problem or is there something else that beats out batteries for that for you? There are options on both fronts. Uh, there's, there's a lot of work aimed at putting large-scale solar installations in Northern Africa, for example, to power Europe during the winter. Uh, so there are some larger distances one could cover economically. There are also a lot of dispatchable renewables, we, which we forget about. Hydro being the obvious one, but biomass, geothermal being two others. So, And then we should also keep in mind that there are different kinds of wind, for example, living in different wind regimes. Offshore wind has a capacity factor well over 50% and has much steadier more predictable winds than onshore winds. So even heterogeneous technologies within a sector can make a big difference. For example, you can point your PV panels west to capture the late evening sun. You get less energy total, but you might get much higher value energy for that late afternoon air conditioning load. So the first thing I would say is think through the mix of renewables so that you capture the full variety of options, dispatchable, non-dispatchable, and different characteristic renewables. There, there are some long-term storage options as well, but these need more work. One of them is compressed air energy storage. There's these huge salt caverns underground. You can compress air during times of surplus renewable energy and then run that compressed air through turbines when you need it. That's a seasonal variation. It's, it's not cheap yet, but it could become cheap, especially since the reservoir is essentially free. And there's a new project, which I'm curious about, of isolating an enormous <laughs> football field plus size of rocks and heating it up to dramatic temperatures, and then using that heat to spin turbines in the winter. That, so this is an experiment that's being built right now in Europe. Mm -hmm. And the molten salt version, I mean, it's, there are companies in it, you know, Malta, which is a spin out of Google X is um, pursuing that strategy. So there are at least folks working on it. There, there's one more really important uh, 
way to think about this, which is right now we're in the business of learning how to go from say 30% renewables to 70 or 80% renewables. If we get too fixated and confused and scared about the last 10%, the last 20%, we might forget the middle 50 or 70%. That's where most of the carbon is. I'm confident that if we march aggressively with what we know toward a 70% decarbonization strategy, that by the time that hits us in 15 or 20 years, we will have a lot of new inventions that help us dramatically with the last 10 or 15%. So I teased at the top of the show that we were going to talk about the deep decarbonization draft that we had back in May. And for any new listeners, I did want to run through our list and encourage you to go back and revisit that episode if you haven't heard it already. We had a lot of fun with it, and we got an extraordinarily res- extraordinary response. So it's back in mi- the middle of May, um, and just take a look at the feed for Deep Decarbonization Draft. So let me read very briefly the, the ultimate lists that we ended up with, and how I want you to go in a little bit more detail about why you chose Shale's team, and then maybe there's a technology or two that we can unpack in greater detail. So here's Shale's list. Centralized solar PV, offshore wind, lithium-ion batteries, high-voltage DC transmission, electrolysis, combined heat and power, electric water heaters, augmented reality, and high-speed rail. We did a Twitter poll afterward, and everyone agreed that Shale won, primarily because he got offshore wind and centralized PV with transmission and and lithium-ion batteries, like all the most cost-competitive stuff. Um, I went out on a limb, and I... I tried to make some wildcard picks and it ultimately didn't work out for me. My list is rooftop PV, advanced power electronics, small modular nuclear, flow batteries, plasma waste recycling, CCS and utilization using carbon capture for industrial processes, biogas digesters, fake meat, and solar hot water. How, why did you lean toward Shale's team given the totality of those picks? Shale's answers give you very fast, very large-scale decarbonization. And those are the two watchwords, speed and scale. So centralized solar PV is being installed at a nickel a kilowatt hour all the way around the world. Lithium-ion batteries enable the electrification of vehicles. That's a really big deal. Electrolysis substitutes hydrogen for the fossil fuels that drive industry today and so forth. A number of them are enablers like high voltage DC transmission, which smooth out the variability of renewables across the country. I would say the flyer in his list is high speed rail. We absolutely have to get past the idea that everyone should pile into a jet everywhere they want to go. High speed rail is a terrific idea, but it makes me wonder when will America square its shoulders and start doing really serious infrastructure projects like that. Yeah, in retrospect, maybe I should have picked Hyperloop. (laughs) <laughs> no, <laughs> Stephen owns that one. Sorry. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about nuclear because we've had this whole conversation and you even mentioned dispatchable uh, renewables. But, you know, a lot of people talk about, especially when you get to high penetrations of renewables, um, one of the solutions being another dispatchable, clean, zero carbon uh, source of production, which is nuclear power. What What's your take on nuclear and where does it fit in this mix? So nuclear power is the fissure line, if you'll pardon the pun, in energy thinking. What I'm going to 
argue, and this is not a pro-nuclear argument and it's not an anti-nuclear argument. I think it's a, just a fact-based argument is that nuclear power has a troubled future unless we change our direction pretty rapidly. Nuclear power can be divided into three generations. There's generation two reactors, and that's essentially all the nuclear power operating around the world today. There are about 400 gen two reactors. They're getting old. Most of them were built in the 70s, some in the 80s. And when you run a nuclear power plant for a long time, you bombard the elements with radioactivity and they get brittle and fragile. And they're hideously expensive to repair because it's highly radioactive. And so everything has to be done by robots. The consequence of that is all 400 nuclear reactors in the world today are going away in the next 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. So we're going to see a decline in nuclear power, whether you love it or hate it. This is a physical problem. It's not going to go away because of policy. So that's the Gen 2 world. Gen 3 reactors are a lot like Gen 2 reactors. They're big. They're built in, in the field, not in the factory. Uh, but they have better safety features. And they were supposed to be more economical to build. Turns out they're incredibly expensive to build. The two that are going up in Europe are going to cost around $20 billion each. They're so expensive that they will not be built in double-digit numbers globally, more than double-digit numbers globally. So Gen 3 reactors are a self-terminating technology that will displace maybe a fifth or an eighth of the 400 reactors that are going to be shut down over the next couple decades. That takes you to Gen 4 reactors, and these are the small modular nuclear reactors. And there are designs that are argued to be safe, cost-effective, proliferation-resistant, that eat up nuclear waste instead of producing nuclear waste that are dispatchable, and so forth. The only problem with these Gen 4 reactors is they don't exist. Um, and it's really expensive to figure out which ones could work. So there are half dozen designs. They're very clever on paper. But there are very few serious efforts to test these designs, to build the test reactors, to try to understand if they're going to function as they look like they should function on paper, uh, and then to see if they're manufacturable, whether you can build them in great numbers, and then to see if they're safe and proliferation resistant. It's my own very rough estimation that it would cost at least $10 billion to seriously test any one of these designs. And the countries around the world are simply not mustering up that kind of money at the speed required to make nuclear an option, a growing option instead of a shrinking option in the next, say, 15 or 20 years. And I'm consumed with speed and scale. And so advanced nuclear power offers neither in the next 15 or 20 years. But I think the practical question out of that that is being faced in policy venues right now is this question between, say, a 100% renewable standard that excludes nuclear and a 100% clean energy standard, which includes nuclear. I mean, based on what you're saying, Hal, it seems to me you could be in favor of the 100% clean energy standard, include nuclear in it, let it have a shot, and your estimation is that it's probably not going to play a big role. It's it's going to fail at competing if it's less that let the best decarbonized technology win. Is that right? Or do you think that we should actually be excluding it from the conversation, excluding it from qualification in these policies, because you don't want us to waste our time on it? I definitely think it should be included. 
We should be technology neutral. We should not be safety neutral. We should want strong safety. And we should not be decarbonization neutral or price neutral. We want strong standards for performance, but we don't need to specify which technology meets those performance goals. There's a, there's a couple more elements here that are worth thinking about, at least for a minute or two. One is that the existing nuclear fleet can be managed well or poorly. If it's managed well, you can stretch out the useful life, which means stretching out zero carbon energy. Uh, of course, if you, if you stretch it out too much and you create danger, it's not worth it. The last thing we want is another nuclear power plant to blow up. So managing the existing fleet is extremely important. There's one more element that I think the people who are against 100% clean power are failing to apprehend which is because those 400 reactors will be shutting down in the next 10 or 20 years, if you have a 100% clean requirement or a 80% clean requirement or whatever have you, every one of those reactors that gets shut down has to be replaced with renewable energy. If you have just a renewables target, you can shut down those reactors and replace them with gas or nuclear and still have the same percentages. So it's actually a handicap to a renewables agenda to have a renewables only standard. It's counterintuitive, but it's the way the math works out. My final question for you is, uh, if you had to pick one market, one country or one state that you think is doing it as close to right as you can find in terms of decarbonization policy, who would you pick? I'd pick two of them, Norway and California. And they're very different, but they're really amazing. So Norway has the benefit of infinite money and infinite hydro. So they are a 98% decarbonized grid, and half the cars sold in Norway are electric vehicles. Norway's, they have the second best or maybe the best building code in the world, and they've now tackled industrial decarbonization in a big way. The problem with picking Norway is it's unique. It's wealthy, and they have... Uh, amazing natural resources to apply. But I'm really proud of the way they've de developed an absolutely comprehensive map for their decarbonization. If you take California, California is now the fifth largest economy in the world. So it's a real, it's as big, it's bigger than almost all countries. It's bigger than 180 countries. Uh, it happens to be doing well economically. So they've decarbonized rapidly without crushing the economy. Quite the contrary. They've disproved that fake idea. It's always been a fake idea that you had to choose between a clean environment and a strong economy. They've done a great job sector by sector. One of the best building codes in the world. Very strong transportation fuel efficiency standards. Really aggressive decarbonization of the grid, and they've beat every one of their targets at a much lower cost. And by the way, their grid is getting more reliable as they decarbonize, not less. They have a carbon cap, which mops up a lot of the other sectors. Where they failed is the growing private car oil consumption. They've got good standards, but they haven't come up with really sound strategies to reduce single occupant vehicle use. But what California's done is, is quite incredible. California and Norway, our libertarian and conservative listeners are going to think we're socialists, Hal. Hey, last time I checked, both countries had really vigorous free market economies amongst the best in the world. <laughs> okay, last question which is, what's the most undervalued policy then? What's a policy that has a huge impact relative to the amount of attention that it gets? Building codes. Oh, I love you build building codes. They are so exciting. 
<laughs> when, when, when you build a crappy building, first of all, they're really hard to retrofit if you don't insulate the ducts and the walls and the ceiling, because you, you gotta just tear the whole building apart to fix it. So if you build a crappy building, you are condemning the homeowner to a lifetime of high energy costs, maybe a hundred years, maybe more than a hundred years of wasted money. Conversely, if you build a building well, you've created a hundred year asset. And the difference is a strong standard, a dynamic strong standards, but also the guys that walk around with clipboards checking to make sure you insulated the ducts and that you, and you filled in the cracks and things like that. So about half of the buildings the world will have in 2050 have yet to be built. We better get them right. Hal Harvey is the CEO of Energy Innovation. He is the lead author in a new book called Designing Climate Solutions. Hal, thanks so much for joining us. Delighted, and thanks for the opportunity. So, Shale, I'll trade you some small modular nuclear and flow batteries for your centralized PV and lithium-ion batteries. Mm, no, the only um, item on the trading block for me is my augmented reality pick, which I immediately regretted once I made it. <laughs> Well, I plan to make up some of the regrets that I have uh, in this decarbonization draft, and we're going to do a new one, and maybe I will consult with Hal when I make my next round of picks. Uh, Shale Khan is the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. He's my co-host. Thanks for listening to this show. Hit us up on Twitter. Shale is there. I'm there. The Interchange Show is there. You can find Hal there as well. And... Um, let us know your thoughts about the policy solutions you think are best, uh, how this plays into national politics, and give Tal's book a read as well. We'll link to it in the show notes. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media, produced by Postscript Audio. Postscript Audio.